You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. One of my favorite hacker movies of all time is the classic social engineering movie Sneakers that debuted in 1992. It's classic for a number of reasons. And first, it came out just three years after Dr. Clifford Stoll published his seminal book, The Cuckoo's Egg, Tracking a Spy Through the Maze of Computer Espionage. That book convinced many of us old-timer network defenders you see walking around the community today to pursue cybersecurity as a career, myself included. Second, to go from Cuckoo's Egg to a major motion picture with not one but three Academy Award winners, Sidney Poitier for Lilies of the Field, and by the way, the first black actor to ever win the Best Actor category, Ben Kingsley for Gandhi, and Robert Redford as director for Ordinary People, and an alumnus from Saturday Night Live, Dan Aykroyd, after Ghostbusters and after the Blues Brothers, and River Phoenix, who had just recently played the young Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. It felt to all of us that cybersecurity had hit the big time. It's called a man trap. I borrowed this demo from the manufacturer. It's a uh, digital voice recognition monitor hooked up to an access booth. NSA uses the same technology to keep people out of restricted areas at Fort Meade. Now speak right into this box. My name is Martin Bishop. My voice is my passport. Verify me. And you can't pass through unless your voice print matches the one encoded on the card. So we need someone's card. And their voice. Can we beat this with tape? Has to be up close and personal. Otherwise, you'll be caught in a steel-reinforced booth while the guards with the shotguns are called. In the movie, the characters social engineer their way through various obstacles to stop Ben Kingsley from using his MacGuffin to control the world. They do this by messing with each of their victims' sense of identity and authentication. Now, the, the concept of identity is fascinating. What are the things that we value about ourselves that show others who we are? Your name? Hacker alias? Address? Favorite Dungeons & Dragons character alignment? Job? Past jobs? Volunteer committees? Art? Politics? Recreation? And many, many other activities and things we belong to or support make up our personal identity. And that doesn't even cover personas. I mean, I have my business persona, my family persona, my neighborhood persona, and my gaming persona. 
I share my identity personas with those communities that I belong to, but I might not want to share them with my other communities. Like, I may not want to share the persona for my level 47 chaotic neutral tiefling warlock named Abigail with the Cyberwire CEO. He might not understand. If you're listening, Peter, no offense. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. This is the 11th show in our series that discusses the development of a general purpose cybersecurity strategy using the concept of first principles to build a strong and robust InfoSec program. We are straying from the path here just a bit to talk about the evolution of identity and authentication. Next week, I'll bring in some subject matter experts to sit around the hash table and discuss identity management within an organization. But this week, the evolution of identity and authentication since the early 60s has been so convoluted and filled with so much internet drama that I thought we should spend some time discovering how we got here. At some level, the internet is a series of transactions, some important, like moving money from your checking account to your ATM card. Some are not quite as important, like watching the host of the daily podcast dance inside his studio during the pandemic on Twitter. Now, things like that are essential, like chicken soup for the soul, but in terms of transactions, maybe not that important. In this important transactional world, though, we need to find things to attach to our identity that authenticate who we are. It is one thing to get on Twitter and broadcast to the world your love of Dave's dancing, but you can't use that love to get money out of an ATM machine. Now, I personally think that should be a law, but it's not a law today. So, we find ways to prove to our transactional partners that we are who we say we are and not some AI bot impersonating us. In the 1850s, the British started using birth certificates to authenticate citizenship. People could present their birth certificate to a bank to get a loan, for example. In 1903, Missouri and Massachusetts became the first states to require a driver's license to operate a car. After World War I, the League of Nations championed the use of passports for international travel. We forget that before the war, people just kind of went through Europe like there was no boundaries at all. In 1935, the United States Congress passed the U.S. Social Security Act that assigned exclusive numbers to citizens. Social Security numbers became the de facto attribute for many years to uniquely distinguish the John Smith who lived in Albuquerque compared to the John Smith who lived in Fresno. In the 1960s, when computers started to become essential tools for big business and government, the late great Dr. Fernando Corbato, one of computing's founding fathers, introduced the idea of using passwords to gain access. Unbeknownst to him, Dr. Corbeteau provided a long list of cyber ne'er-do-wells, a never-ending attack vector to break into computer systems. In fairness to Dr. Corbeteau, though, passwords didn't start really breaking down as an authentication system until the internet started humming for online transactions, say, circa mid-1990s. As the internet scaled, passwords just didn't cut it anymore. Astonishingly, Passwords are still the thing that most people use to authenticate themselves today, a technique that now is over 50 years old. 
1993, Tim Howes, Steve Killey, and Wingick Young collaborated to invent LDAP, or the Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. And according to Juliet Kemp over at ServerWatch, LDAP lets administrators organize information on the network and provide users access to it. Howes and team designed LDAP to facilitate authentication over a distributed TCP IP network. By 2000, Microsoft included LDAP into its backbone authentication system called Active Directory that uses both LDAP for user lookup and Kerberos for authentication. Kerberos was created at MIT in their Athena project in 1988. In 2002, the United States Congress passed the famous Sarbanes-Oxley Law, which, among other things, held companies liable for bad access control. By 2006, we started seeing the first managed services for identity management, and by 2010, we started seeing the first SaaS identity management services. By 2014, organizational data started to distribute across multiple data islands, like still in the traditional perimeter, but also in private data centers, personal devices, SaaS providers, and cloud providers, both IaaS and PaaS. It was clear that on-prem identity solutions were on their way out in favor of SaaS identity services. One of the problems with digital identity and authentication is that our current systems are site-centric. Users of systems have to present the same credential information to multiple digital silos like Amazon, Netflix, eBay, and the like. And these silos don't talk to each other. And there's little granularity for access control. It's difficult to give only a partial credential set to a site-centric portal. It is usually all or nothing. And like I said, these sites are silos. If I routinely use, say, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, I can individually log into each separately. But I can't ask Amazon to share the books I purchased on their site with their competitors, even though it's my information, because they are all walled gardens. If Dr. Corbeteau invented the beta version of identity and authentication back in the 60s, Dick Hart, an internet identity evangelist, says that by the mid-2000s, we had finally reached identity and authentication version 1.0 with our site-centric systems. When the idea of identity federation emerged sometime after, that probably moved us to identity and authentication version 1.5. According to Helen Patton, the Ohio State University CISO, Federation is the idea that if two partners trust each other, they trust each other's users. If Helen travels to her trusted partner's campus, say, the University of Michigan, she is able to log on to the campus Wi-Fi network without any coordination hassles. From my perspective, Federation is the associative property of trust. If the University of Michigan trusts Ohio State University and Ohio State University trusts Helen, then the University of Michigan trusts Helen too. That's all fine, but it's not yet a perfect solution. One-off partnerships don't scale. What we need is identity and authentication version 2.0, where we move away from site-centric solutions to a user-centric solution. In other words, I create and store my identity and associated personas with a trusted authorized broker. When I visit Netflix and Amazon, I direct them to authenticate me through the broker, and I only give them access to the bare essential credentials required and nothing more. In the early 2000s, two technologies emerged that would move us closer to that goal, SAML and OpenID combined with OAuth. 
SAML stands for Security Assertion Markup Language and refers to a heavyweight XML variant language that facilitates one computer to perform both authentication and authorization on behalf of other computers. The OpenID OAuth pair is a set of competing technologies to SAML that have a crazy and confusing history of internet drama. Don't worry if this all sounds confusing. It is. For example, OAuth stands for Open Authentication. The crazy thing is that OAuth doesn't authenticate anything. It simply authorizes a machine to log into another machine on behalf of a human. OpenID does the authentication for humans. By 2014, though, this had all settled down. Today, according to CSO Magazine, most network operators use SAML for enterprise applications and OAuth for open internet situations. At this point, with SAML and the combined pair of OpenID OAuth, we have probably reached identity and authentication version 1.7, up from version 1.5 that we got with Federation, but still not quite 2.0. To get to 2.0, a user-centric solution, I would direct your attention to a paper written by Kim Cameron when he worked for Microsoft back in 2005 called The Laws of Identity. That might be a good place to start. He lists seven characteristics that any modern identity system should have. Number one, user control and consent. In other words, the user is in charge, not the portals. Number two, minimal disclosure for a constrained use. This is basically zero trust for authentication data. Only give the bare essentials. Number three, justifiable parties. This is also zero trust, but for the transactional parties. Only authorize those that need authorization and nobody else. Number four, directed identity. This is the ability to send information in one direction or in multiple directions, including exchanging information amongst all the transactional partners. Number five, Pluralism of operators and technologies. This is the ability to operate with multiple technologies and multiple entities. Number six, human integration. This means that the interface should be easy for humans to negotiate securely. And finally, number seven, consistent experience across contexts. In other words, with all the things we have to do with authentication and identity, each individual thing should not feel like it is something completely different from all the other things that we are trying to do there. The bottom line is that the concept of identity and authentication is probably the most important thing to get right for the future of transactional internet business. We can have all the first principle strategies in place that you want, like resilience, zero trust, and intrusion kill chains. But being able to know precisely that Abigail, the level 47 chaotic neutral typhling warlock, is really Rick Howard and not the owner of a Russian influence operation run out of Novosibirsk, Siberia, is key to everything. Without it, we will have no confidence in any future system like online voting, census taking, or really any transactional interactions with our governments, commercial business, or academic institutions. You would be right to point out that the way we do identity and authentication today, the version 1.7 that I have described, kind of works, and it does. I'm able to watch Netflix and buy books from Amazon and order hamburgers from my local Five Guys, all relatively hassle-free. But these site-centric systems were designed by commercial firms for the purpose of making money, which I'm not against in principle. But maybe there is a loftier design goal that we should pursue. Maybe we should design our identity and authentication systems to benefit the people. I'm just saying. And that's a wrap. 
If you agree or disagree with anything I have said, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can continue the conversation there. Next week, I have invited our pool of CyberWire's experts to sit around the hash table with me to discuss identity management within an organization. You don't want to miss that. The CyberWire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.